Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. What's wrong with the National Flood Insurance Program? I would say the program is built upon a very flawed assumption. And that assumption is that the flood risks of the past are an accurate predictor of our flood risks in the future. And everything in the flood insurance program is built on that assumption. And we know that that assumption is, is wrong because of climate change. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. That was Rob Moore, director of the Climate and Water Team at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We have a great conversation about flooding issues in the United States and how the policy and regulatory response to flooding can be quite maddening and sometimes dangerous. We also talk about the adaptation ecosystem and how large environmental groups are working on both mitigation and adaptation and the challenges of doing both effectively. It's an awesome conversation. Okay, some really cool news. I was asked to contribute an article to the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco in their community development newsletter. This whole issue is dedicated to climate adaptation and it was edited by Jesse Keenan, someone who's been on the podcast a couple times before. As you can imagine, it was a real honor to contribute to this piece. This is the Fed Reserve. My article, which I co-wrote with Dan Ackerstein of Ackerstein Consulting, focuses on climate communication and using podcasts as a means of communicating adaptation. Right up my alley. Again, thanks to Jesse Keenan for asking us to contribute. I have links to the article in my show notes. Please check out the other articles. Many leading voices in adaptation contributed to this issue. I'm going to have a whole episode dedicated to the publication, and I'll have Jesse back on to walk us through what was said. Stay tuned. Also, I'm recording this in Gainesville, Florida. I was invited by the University of Florida to lead a how to podcast workshop at a science communication workshop they are hosting. I love Gainesville. I was born here. I went to school here, and it's the home of the Florida Gators. I'll be walking participants through on how to get started on podcasting. I do these trainings, and if you think you have an event you're planning that would benefit, I also talk about adaptation in general. Please reach out if you see a potential collaboration. Okay, next up, I'm hosting Dr. A.R. Siders from the University of Delaware. It's a full episode dedicated to managed retreat. You're going to love this episode. Also in the works, a look at the presidential candidates' adaptation and resilience policies. Dr. Samantha Montano has done an assessment of all the candidates running in 2020, and she's coming on and we'll talk about what she's discovered. Okay, stick around until the end, but let's jump into this conversation with Rob Moore of NRDC. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Rob Moore. Rob is the director of the Water and Climate Team at NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Doug. Okay, so we met at the National Adaptation Forum, and then we have connected uh, via email quite a few times. I'm glad I got you on. I don't know why it took me so long. (laughs) Well, I'm a fan of the show and was really excited to be able to come on today and, and talk about some of the work that we're doing and some of the things that your listeners want to learn about. Yeah, you know, it occurs to me that I don't actually have too many guests that have come from like large environmental organizations. And it's just an area. I mean, I've worked with groups like NRDC over my career, but just for whatever reason, I haven't touched base with you guys on the podcast. So this is great. NRDC has been doing great work for decades. So I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Jumping right in there. Let's not be shy. For those of my listeners who don't know what NRDC is or what they do, could you kind of give a background? 
Sure. We're a national environmental organization, actually an international environmental organization that works on a whole range of issues. Climate change is a big part of our portfolio, especially dealing with the causes of climate change. But we have a growing body of work that's also focused on climate adaptation. And that's that's the stuff that my team works on, at least on the impacts of climate change that are kind of on the wet end of the spectrum. So flooding, sea level rise, and also just disaster policy more generally. And NRDC works across a range of other things, too, whether it's protecting endangered species habitat or public lands protection. We do a lot of work in communities on health and toxics, drinking water, as well as a whole lot of work in public health and lead in drinking water. And you name an issue, and NRDC is probably involved with it. NRDC obviously is a big program, and it's focusing on resilience. And how big is your shop, though? You, you, you're involved with these water and climate teams. How, how many people kind of work with you on, on that issue? Yeah, so the water and climate team is part of our Healthy People Thriving Communities program. And there's actually like three and a half full-time staff assigned to that team. So it's a small team, but we get quite a bit of stuff done, I think, for the amount of manpower we have to throw at it. We're going to dig into some of the policy work that you do, but I, I guess I still want to dig down a bit more into the work that your, 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 your shop works on. And so if people are literally thinking about what you do, I mean, what is the focus? Is it sort of like recommendations of policy? I mean, wh- what are you actually generating out of the shop that you're doing? And, and we're going to dive into some of the actual specific areas, the programs and such, but I just am curious, what is it that you're producing and doing? A lot of what my team focuses on is federal policy. When you look at the problems associated with climate adaptation, and particularly flood risk and sea level rise, these are challenges that in many ways go beyond the capacity of any individual community or state to address. These are going to require a federal response of some level. And there's, there's several federal policies like the National Flood Insurance Program, which frankly, are quite maladaptive to where we need to be going if we're going to successfully cope with the impacts of climate change. So it's really important that we get those federal policies right so that they're not contributing to making the problem worse than it already is. But those policies like the National Flood Insurance Program, they should be a linchpin in our overall national climate adaptation strategy. But in their present form, they're really a liability. So these are really critical areas that we're focused on, as well as overall policies that govern kind of disaster preparedness and response. And also, how do you get, how do you make sure that when the federal government is investing money in public infrastructure or public buildings, that that money is being spent in a way that's informed by what we know about future climate impacts? So these are all things that, that can have a big influence on how uh, the nation is coping with climate change and how it will cope with it in the future. So it's critical to get those things right. I think we're going to focus a lot. I'm sure your focus is on the national flooding program. And so what are some of those shortcomings? It seems like every six months I see some sort of headline like, well, if they make these reforms, if they do this or they're just punting the ball. I mean, what's really going on there? Yeah. So Congress has failed for over two years now to uh, reauthorize and reform the National Flood Insurance Program. It lapses by design every five years. That enables Congress to tweak it in theory, make changes, and the program can proceed. But since 2017, Congress has really struggled to do that. 
The House has been making good progress, has even passed a bill under uh, the previous Congress, which was uh, controlled by the Republicans, has a bill in process uh, under leadership of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, this new Congress. The Senate has been kind of asleep at the wheel. They've, they've never even brought a bill to committee to discuss. So it's been very frustrating. But enough of the process. Like, <laughs> maybe to answer your question more directly, what's wrong with the National Flood Insurance Program? If I had to boil it down to one thing, Doug, I would say the program is built upon a very flawed assumption. And that assumption is that the flood risks of the past are an accurate predictor of our flood risks in the future. And everything in the flood insurance program is built on that assumption. And we know that that assumption is is wrong uh, because of climate change. Well, even if it's built on that assumption, I'm just thinking of, you know, decades and decades of people after a, a flooding event will rebuild in those flood zones. And I think folks that don't live in flood zones are thinking, why are they getting money to do this and why are they doing this? And so that in itself it's a, is a major flaw with the process, right? Yeah, it certainly is. We did a report a couple of years ago called Seeking Higher Ground, and it looked at this problem of repeatedly flooded homes that the flood insurance program pays billions of dollars to rebuild over and over and over again. And, you know, for, for somebody who, who looks at this program from the outside, that just looks insane. Like, why are we paying uh, so much money? to rebuild homes 5, 10, in some cases 20 or 30 times that have been damaged. Well, that's that's unfortunately the way the program works. The flood insurance program is designed really first and foremost to help people rebuild. And there's no limitation on the number of times that the program will pay to rebuild someone's home. But that's actually not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that even if the person realizes rebuilding is not a smart option. And even if it would be more cost effective for FEMA to buy that house and allow that person to move somewhere safer, the flood insurance program is incapable of delivering that result. It is only really focused on providing assistance to rebuild and in some cases rebuild in a way that will lower your flood risk, but it, it won't pay to completely eliminate your flood risk by allowing you to move to higher ground. And that's something that's that really needs to be changed, uh, among many other things uh, that need to be changed in the program, too. I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm thinking if, like, you have, let's say, flooding event that happens, like, with riverine systems, you know, freshwater flooding, and then you have coastal flooding, be it a hurricane or storm surges. When it comes to buyouts or rebuilding, is there any difference in sort of the psychology of the, the homeowners in wanting to stay there? Or is everyone pretty much, if they have a chance to rebuild, they'll do it? Do you feel like, okay, on the coast, there's a better chance that people are just going to want to flee that area? That's a good question. If you look at where FEMA has financed buyouts, and, and they do fund buyouts. They've funded about 43,000 buyouts over the last 30 years or so through other programs, uh, not through the flood insurance program. Most of those have taken place on in inland locations, so on rivers, not beachfront homes. I think there's probably a variety of reasons for that, but the reality is I think people who most of our flooding problems are not necessarily what we consider beachfront homes. They really are properties that are located further inland 
Um, they may be in a coastal area, but they're not the houses that are right on the beach. You think about the psychology of where you live, and I just I would guess when it comes to people living on the coast, there's just not that long a tradition of living there. People in the interior of the country, they might have been there three, four, five, six generations, where sometimes you might be the first generation living on the coast. You're just not as connected to the landscape. So I wonder if there's an opportunity there when we talk about, and I want to get into it, some of the sea level rise buyouts that are happening. I think you're hitting upon something that that is true. I mean, the longer people reside in an area, they have a stronger connection to place, and maybe a buyout isn't as attractive as to somebody who's a more recent, who's, who's moved to the area more recently. In coastal areas, you tend to also have, like on, in beachfront properties, they also tend to be newer housing stock, and they're built to a, a more modern building code, which may require the house to be elevated considerably. If you've ever been to the, a beachfront community, you, know, you see all these houses on stilts, and the reason is because building code requires them to be built that high so that they are at less risk of flooding or storm surge. When you look at inland areas, the housing stock tends to be older, and it maybe wasn't built to as protective of a standard, so it may be more vulnerable to flooding than a coastal beachfront property. I want to talk a bit about some of the buyout programs, and is there a successful example of a buyout program? And I think Hurricane Sandy and maybe even going back to Katrina, that a lot of money flooded into these areas, and I think people were getting innovative with how to kind of get people to start thinking about not living near the coast. Can you can you share an example of like a successful one, or at least it's a work in progress? Yeah, I think buyouts that took place on Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy are, are one of the more successful models that you could point to. In that case, uh, there was ample funding available that came, that funding specifically came through HUD's Community Development Block Grant resources. There was a commitment by, from the homeowners, uh, large numbers of them had been dealing with flooding for years and Sandy was kind of the tipping point for them where they didn't want to leave their community, but they knew that staying in that neighborhood was not in their long-term interest any longer. So they appealed directly to the state of New York for assistance to help them relocate, and New York delivered that assistance. And it was one of the more successful efforts. Hundreds of homes were bought out. Most of them were bought out in less than a year's time, or a little over a year, perhaps, which sounds like a long time, but I have to say, sadly, for uh, federally financed buyouts, that is a record-breaking pace. If you're dealing with a FEMA-financed buyout, a report we recently released found that you know, that assistance can take over five years uh, to reach a homeowner after a flood has taken place. And that's really, that's really unacceptable. But even looking at the buyouts in Staten Island, where a lot of things came together to help people do what they wanted to do and uh, move out of a vulnerable location. That doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, unfortunately, those those are things are the exception rather than the rule. And we really need to get better at how to help people make the decision to relocate and provide them the resources that they need to relocate. Uh, otherwise, you know, managed retreat is just it's really unmanageable. You know, there, there will be nothing 
that resembles what we think of as managed retreat, if we can't get these programs to deliver the assistance to the people who need it the most and, and in a time frame when they need it. I guess what we're seeing now, especially with these hurricanes, it's almost like trial runs. We know it's going to happen on a much larger, larger scale, but these trial runs we're learning hopefully a lot from. But I guess what we've learned is that they're taking too long. Yeah, they're, they take way too long. And there are, um, you know, there's, there's some, some real negative consequences with that. I mean, the most obvious of which is you're leaving somebody to live in a place that's not safe. So that's the first problem. The second problem is for a lot of the people, who see their home flood and they're approached about a buyout in the time that they are waiting to get an answer on whether their home is going to be bought out or not. Many of them endure another flood that has a pretty high personal cost associated with it. If nobody wants to have their phone, their home flood, much less have their home flood multiple times. And if they have flood insurance, that's also a, a burden on the U.S. taxpayer. Because we're re- we we will we are paying to rebuild that home multiple times, while paperwork gets moved from desk to desk to determine whether we should perhaps buy that property out and allow that person to move somewhere safer. And then the other the other big problem is this really contributes to existing inequities in our society. So if you're a poorer person, a person who's who, who's on the lower side of the income spectrum. It's financially very difficult to live in this purgatory we place people in who are waiting for a buyout. You literally find it difficult to afford to continue living in a place when you don't know if you are moving or not moving. So if your your furnace breaks on your house while you're waiting for a buyout, do you put the money out to replace it? Because FEMA is not paying for your new furnace plus the the value of your home. So that's money that you're going to you can ill afford to lose. Are you going to continue to maintain the house uh, if it needs a new roof? Or are you going to replace that? So we really put people in an uncomfortable situation. And, and you can see how this plays out in areas that have been affected by flooding recently. The Houston Chronicle did an amazing uh, story last year about how people who are desperate to move out of homes that have flooded multiple times in recent years, most recently in Harvey and probably uh, in Tropical Storm Imelda earlier this year, people have basically given up on getting a publicly financed buyout, and they are selling their homes for a fraction of the value to real estate speculators just so they can get away from the home. And then those speculators are fixing the house up, up, flipping it to the next unsuspecting buyer or renting them out and perpetuating a problem that if assistance could have been delivered in a more timely fashion, the flooding problem could have been eliminated forever on that property. Again, think of the, the notion of people's real estate speculators that go in and kind of take advantage of people. I think of the just the real estate crash back in 2008, 2009, that there's money here to kind of do these smaller scale experiments. Oh, a neighborhood in Staten Island. But if it, especially along the coastal areas, if we see this, this sort of migration away from the coast that we think is coming, what's really the likely scenario? Is there just going to be a massive pot of money to say, here, we're going to help you buy? Or like, I, I think of, I'm from Florida originally, and 
people just started abandoning homes, right? There's that they were not paying the, the mortgages and, and other people were not buying these homes. And is that a potential scenario? And, and there's that, what that means is just you're going to have a lot of people going into bankruptcy. And I, I guess the cynic in me thinks that's a more likely scenario than like, well, the government has a very well functioning buyout plan, but there'll never be enough money for it. Yeah, you're, you are encapsulating what some of the challenges we're facing are very well, Doug. Let's look at this problem from the perspective of the homeowner. Okay. So they know they have a flooding problem. They would love to get away from it. Well, what are their options to get away from that? As you pointed out, one, one would be to abandon your home, to simply walk away from it. You know, the most, ex, the most valuable asset they probably have, just abandon it. So people do that. It's certainly not to their financial advantage to do that, but, but they get to a point where that seems like the best solution and nobody wins in that scenario. The second option they have is they could sell it probably at a loss because the market for flood prone homes isn't really the best, most robust real estate market. So they're going to probably sell it at a loss and move away. But what have we accomplished there? Well, now we've just perpetuated a game of musical chairs and a rather dangerous game of musical chairs where we've just swapped one person uh, for another in the same bad situation. And the third option is is what we talk about when we're thinking about the topic of managed retreat is public financing is available to actually help people move to higher ground and escape an area that's increasingly vulnerable because of the impacts of climate change. You know, that is where we need to get to in this country. Is it going to be expensive? Well, it ain't going to be cheap, but it's probably not dramatically more expensive than what we're spending to build in the places that we need to unbuild and to rebuild in the in the very same places after each of these major storms that have been hitting in recent years. Here's a thought experiment that you never get to do in real life, but I think of places like Sandy or Katrina and you see the sort of the numbers that kind of go in 100 billion, 200 billion. Now, let's say the storm never hits and you took that 200. Yeah, pretty soon you're talking about real money. Right. But let's say you took instead in advance, preemptively, you had 200 billion dollars. And this is, of course, how our Congress does not work. And you were trying to get people to migrate from these really high at risk areas in Louisiana. Would 200 billion dollars even be enough to be a, a drop in the bucket to kind of get the the numbers away from the sort of areas that are at threat, I don't know. But it seems like even if we're super proactive in trying to get people to retreat from the coast, is the money that we're talking about, is it cheaper for just to go through the storm event and come in and clean up after? I mean, is that why that's sort of such the easy thing to do? No. In fact, we did a, a simple analysis uh, a couple years ago looking at this problem where, where we just looked at properties that FEMA characterizes as uh, severe repetitive loss properties. So these are homes that by definition have flooded at least four times. And in reality, when you look at the data, these homes have flooded an average of five times. For a vast majority of those homes, they are worth, uh, their property value is about 110000 And the National Flood Insurance Program has already, to date, paid an average of $134,000 in damage claims on those properties. So there's about 36,000 properties that are classified by FEMA as severe repetitive loss properties. But they're, they're the real canary in the coal mine for 
the millions of homes that are going to be increasingly at risk of repeated flooding because of sea level rise and escalated incidents of inland flooding. Based on the numbers we've seen, it's quite cost effective for many of these properties to simply help that owner relocate if that's what they want to do, rather than continuing to pay to rebuild them over and over again. And we just we're hemorrhaging billions of dollars in this country to basically perpetuate a cycle of flood, rebuild, repeat. Yeah, <laughs> not the wisest choice. So, okay, so here, let me, here's another hypothetical. This is where I like to have fun. And this was a previous episode I did with an environmental lawyer, and we talked about sea level rise and what it might mean to get people to retreat from the coast and the notion of using federal uh, power of eminent domain, thinking like bend over backwards, trying to get people to re- retreat from the coast, and some don't want to, or there's just not enough money, and there's all of sorts of different reasons. But let's say you have this power that like condemned this huge swaths of coastal land because of eminent domain, because we know the models are showing that this whole area is going underwater. And then you're giving a fair market value, and I think where the rub is, it's like, well, fair market value, when you're not factoring in that this was going to become a potentially degraded area, what was it when it, like, all things are functioning normally? What are your thoughts on on the government starting to use a more regulatory approach to kind of get people away from the coast? And let's say you're not speaking on behalf of NRDC or something. <laughs> I'm not I'm not falling for that disclaimer, but <laughs> <laughs> I will answer your question anyway. <laughs> Good. There may be a point in the future where the use of eminent domain becomes an option that communities start to look at, or even state or federal government starts to look at. We're not at that point right now. You know, right right now, here's here here is the situation that we are dealing with. There are a lot of people who are tired of living through repeated floods. And they are unable to get the assistance they need from their local, state, and federal government to relocate, even though it's to their benefit, their community's benefit, and to the federal government's financial benefit to do so. You know, that's a, that's the problem we need to fix first. Tied with that problem that we need to fix, uh, or t- tied as a priority for fixing that problem, is we need to stop building things in areas that we can accurately predict today that we're going to have to unbuild at some point in the future. You know, as long as communities continue to allow development in low-lying coastal areas or floodplains, you know, we're we're just making a bad situation worse. I mean, the, the old adage is if you want to get out of a hole, the first step is to stop digging. And we haven't quite figured that one out yet. Okay, I'm going to do a few pivots here, and this next question was actually given to me by someone who deals with disaster and risk, and they wanted to know what your thoughts are on nature-based approaches to flood management. Yeah, we think we think nature-based approaches are fantastic, and those those approaches can be married up quite nicely with a a program aimed at buying out flood-prone properties. You know, the the ideal situation is. You help people uh, escape a flood-prone area. You reclaim those properties, and you put either through ecological restoration or installation of, of so-called green infrastructure or natural infrastructure systems. You restore some of the the natural hydrologic functioning of that of that land, and that provides some flood mitigation benefits as well as a lot of other co-benefits. So, so these things need to be 
seen as a continuum of of a, of a single strategy. You know, I, ideally, managed retreat should have a few components. What my what my team is mostly focused on is kind of that that first step. How do you help people move out of these vulnerable areas? The second step is, well, how do you make sure there is somewhere for those people to go uh, in the same community? So you've got to address that housing uh, issue. If you want people to retain, remain in your community, there have to be places for them to move to. And the third component is, how do you make use of the properties you've now acquired to lower the flood risk for everybody else? It seems to me it is you're trying to get a community to think about abandoning an area. I don't, I don't know if NRDC gets into this. We, we've talked a bit about the psychology of people who stay in areas, but then also the psychology of convincing people to leave. And it seems to me as part of your pitch is like, well, we're going to take this land and we're going to turn it into sand dunes. I don't know if that would be an attractive thing for people. Well, you know, our, my land's going to end up doing something positive, but I'm sure it's part of it. But is that an area that you guys kind of think about as, again, the sort of the psychological approach? Approaches to what's happening here. Doug, that is a great, that's a really great point to bring up. We actually worked with an economist at the University of Illinois, Dr. Amy Ando, and she had a grad student do a study. That study found that people were much more inclined to want a buyout of their property if they know that it's not going to be redeveloped, that it's actually going to be returned to nature. And that that's a sentiment that's actually borne out in a book by, I think, somebody who was a guest on your show uh, last year, Elizabeth Rush, in her book, Rising. She interviewed some right. of the people from Staten Island who accepted buyouts after Hurricane Sandy. And unequivocally, some of the people she interviewed said that one of their biggest fears is that these buyouts were just a way to get them off their land so other people come in and redevelop it and profit from their from their problems. And I, I can't remember the quote exactly, but when they insisted that these properties not be redeveloped, that was a real game changer. The people were much more inclined to participate in this buyout effort if they had assurances that the properties would not be redeveloped. And it, the quote the quote I remember from Elizabeth's book was from a person on Staten Island who said, you know, if we thought this property was going to be redeveloped, then we would stay. That's a pretty strong sentiment. Yeah. Well, it it, it seems to me like, I, and maybe this is happening. I, I can't speak like in New York. The, they're quite progressive. But right now, and be it Florida, Louisiana, that there be, should be public service announcements sort of on an ongoing basis, sort of saying, you know, we're going to have these coastal challenges and – opportunities for retreat and and really highlighting it's like you know if there is this transfer of land that it's going for you know restoration to a nature-based approach and on top of it just being sort of a natural setting it's there to climate proof the community it makes the rest of the community a bit more secure and we should spend the next 20 years just putting these messages out even if it's not actively happening in an area and there's just a woeful lack of you know coordinated communication just getting people open to the idea and yeah that would be great if we could see more of that let's do that doug we can do that Come on, let's, let's figure out how to do that. I, no. I'm, I'm game. I'm ready to do it. Yeah, we, there's a flip side to that, too, is we do pathetically little in this country to actually help people understand the true flood risks they are living with. NRDC did a study uh, last year, 
And we found that there are 30 states in the, in the U.S. where if you are buying a home, the current owner has no obligation to inform you of past flood damage or whether they are legally obligated to maintain flood insurance on that home. So people are basically denied, in some ways, denied information when buying a home about the flood risks that that come along with that home. That lack of information is further compounded by the fact that if a person goes in the absence of this disclosure, if a person's like, well, I'll go check out FEMA's flood maps, so they'll give me some indication of the flood risk. Well, you know, most flood maps are pretty out of date. They can be 10, 20, even 30 years out of date. So what you're looking at is a map of flood risk from 30 years ago, not the present. And even if it is an up-to-date map, FEMA's flood maps don't believe in climate change. They, they say nothing about uh, how flood risk may change in the future. They, they don't incorporate any projections of sea level rise. They don't allow for the potential for extreme weather events, which seem to happen more and more frequently nowadays. Uh, so they really under-inform people about the flood risks that they face. Well, I'm going to get back to a bit about communication adaptation later on the episode, but I, I think it's a missed opportunity. And like you said, maybe this notion of <laughs> let's work on something. NRDC, you know, I think look at the foundations. The foundations fund a lot of work. And, I, you know, I don't think people recognize what adaptation really is. They still kind of put it in this box. It's this technical, wonky thing, and it isn't. It's truly this – it's going to be a generational struggle and I've talked about this before in the podcast, and usually the word propaganda we think of in a negative way. But if you go back to World War II and the Victory Gardens and those kind of things, that you know the government was just getting people thinking about these issues. And I, I think we need to start having those broader communication strategies. Just it's so alien to most people when you even start talking about this thing. You know what? We go to a conference and we think everyone's talking about it. No one's talking about it. And so there, I would love to see groups like NRDC and the big ones really kind of come up with broader communication strategies. I think there'd be a huge demand for it. All right. I, well, I went on my rant there. Well, I think it's a good rant. Okay. Uh. <laughs> well, listen, I want to come back to some adaptation communication later on, but I want to get to a few things first. I hold that thought. I just I jumped the gun on a few things, but I wanted to to get, make sure I get to this. <laughs> and you're at NRDC, and we had a little little chance to talk about this, but there's and it's not just NRDC. You know, this is happening with so many groups that there's this tension in the climate change community between mitigation and what I mean is the mitigation of carbon emissions, sort of like the Paris Accords and all that, and then the adaptation side of things. And I think a lot of groups, probably NRDC included, struggle with like, what are you going to emphasize? What's really going to be the primary focus? And, and how do we communicate these issues? And it, what are your thoughts about those tensions? Yeah, I, th I think that's an existing tension, whether it's at uh, an organization like NRDC or, or any number of other large environmental groups. And it's something that we're aware of and are consciously addressing. Let, let me put a personal twist on this. You know, I've spent my career in environmental advocacy. Uh, earlier in my career, I, I worked at an organization uh, in New York called Environmental Advocates of New York. And I felt the same way. Like, look, it was in the early 2000s. And I was like, look, this climate change issue is hugely important. We have to throw everything we can at lowering emissions and averting these problems that, that the scientific community is telling us are going to occur as the climate warms. And I was very, I was not very open to talking about adaptation, right? That was a, that was a competing proposition and, and could be construed as, well, you, 
you can't work on adaptation because it's basically saying you're not going to work on emissions reductions. Well, then in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit New York. And for me personally, that was a real eye opener. I was like, wow, you know, that that is a climate change event that we just saw and that the people in New York City and, and the uh, broader metropolitan area are now dealing with. And that was the eye opener for me that we no longer have the luxury of working only on emissions reductions. Uh, we have to work on emissions reductions and uh, working on climate adaptation is no longer an, an optional event. And the past few years of storm and hurricane and wildfire seasons here in the United States have made that painfully clear. You know, the fact of the matter is, and this is borne out in any number of reports, uh, the, the series of reports, the International Panel on Climate Change has been rolling out over the past year, the National Climate Assessment, and, you know, take your pick of the hundreds of scientific studies that have come out. Uh, it's very clear that, that we, we must work. Working on climate change now means doing everything we can that's humanly possible to, to reduce the emissions that are its root cause, as well as grappling with how we help nature and how we help uh, human communities cope with the all-too-real impacts of climate change that, are, that we already see and that are still to come. Well, how does that work at NRDC, especially, I think, the, the adaptation side of things that has become, I guess, more prominent in the last five, ten years? You guys have been working on the, the mitigation side for a while, but are those like two camps or is there a lot of integration? No, I think the reality is it's, it's largely uh, two camps. You know, we have a very large investment uh, in staff and resources and effort over the past several years on reducing emissions. But there's a growing awareness that, you know, the impacts of climate change are quite evident today with only one degree of warming. And even if we achieve our loftiest goals on emissions reductions and keep future warming to two degrees Celsius or even 1.5 degrees Celsius as agreed upon in the Paris Accords, you know, the impacts of climate change don't diminish with that increase in temperature. They, they only escalate. So there's a considerable amount of work that groups like NRDC need to be doing to cope with those impacts. You know, the reality of, of, of our work at NRDC is that there, there are many people in different programs and on different teams that over the years have recognized the importance of incorporating climate adaptation into their work. And there's a, a number of us that kind of of our own volition started evolving our work in that direction. And now the organization, I think there's a, a growing awareness that we need to have a much more deliberate strategy on climate adaptation and that it's going to need to be integrated very closely with our overall strategy on climate change. It's just fascinating to kind of see larger groups grapple with how they focus on this. And you've you listened to the podcast. I've brought it up on a number of occasions is that Oh, if you focus on adaptation, that means you're ignoring mitigation and, oh my goodness, God, no. And I've tried to make that point over and over again. They're just two separate areas. And I remember, and I don't know if I was being unfair to them. I was at a conference a couple of years ago and I was having a conversation with a state uh, nature conservancy person. And they were telling me that, and I don't even know if this is the case. I haven't followed them much at all, but she was saying that they're getting into the mitigation side of things in a big way at the state and federal level. And I think I just looked at her and I'm like, why? Because 
I just I, I think I was being flippant, but it's just you're the nature conservancy, you're a giant land trust. You're it seems to me your focus sh- should be on adaptation because that's what you've just had this decade long you know reputation for. Why would you get into a space that I felt like NRDC and EDF and just some of the other groups have been doing for a while and. She wasn't too happy with my critique, but uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, know your skill set. I, I don't know. I just guess I don't know NRDC well enough. Like it, you guys are putting out a lot of good material. It's just I, I but I'm sure you kind of went through that sort of strategic planning thinking process. Like, all right, should we be doing this? Yeah, we, we have been going through that, that type of, of uh, deliberate thinking about these problems. I think a lot of people's assumptions on what it means to work on climate change have been, frankly, challenged by some of the new information that has been coming out from the International Panel on Climate Change. Starting with the report that the IPCC put out in October of last year on what it's going to take to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, I think that really underscored just how daunting of a challenge it's going to be to reduce emissions to that extent. But it also highlighted just how steep the challenge is to adapt to even that level of warming. You know, the, the science on the adaptation side, I think, is evolving very fast, and very little of it provides good news. The impacts of climate change, uh, in many instances, are outpacing our past projections of what the pace of impacts would be. And that's Certainly true in the arena of, of sea level rise. But I think at NRDC, too, we, we are increasingly realizing that you cannot pretend to be addressing climate change in a way that's fair and equitable to all members of our society if you are not addressing climate resilience and adaptation. The fact of the matter is that these hurricanes, these flood events, these wildfires, these droughts that, that the U.S. has been experiencing often hit disadvantaged and lower income communities the hardest. We have to be able to offer them solutions beyond, sorry about your flood, drought, wildfire, but here's some great ways to reduce your emissions because such an approach isn't addressing their problems that, you know, we, we, we think it's very important that we be able to come up with solutions that address that, that very real-life challenge that, that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, even just here in the U.S., are already being affected by. There's also a growing body of knowledge out there that shows that the way the United States delivers disaster assistance actually contributes to making poor people poorer. These disasters that are now driven by climate change are actually contributing to the existing equity gap here in the United States. So we have to be very conscious of that as we uh, develop our solutions on climate change, including our strategies for lowering emissions and, and on the adaptation side. I certainly feel that focusing on adaptation resilience is sort of a pathway into like real effective climate change policy. So even though if you're focusing on mitigation, it's like people can get their heads around like, what can we do to sort of help right now and adaptation lends itself to that narrative a lot better than well if we just reduce our and again you have to do these things but i'm just saying it's it's a it's a nice interface it's a nicer interface to deal with the public today than i think the mitigation side people do they they have a tough job they they it's it's i don't envy their side of things 
people aren't used to thinking long term and climate change, it poses a very difficult problem and risk communication. You're talking about risks that people perceive as being very far off. And, and part of that, I think, is a problem of how we communicate about these risks. If you look at graphs of climate data, impacts of climate change, there are all these very smooth charts and graphs, right? That kind of gives the perception that, oh, climate change is this kind of smooth, predictable upward curve. And you know, we've got time to, to deal with it. Except, you know, the planet doesn't operate in such a smooth, linear fashion. These things happen in fits and starts. And um, you, know, you, you see that in the weather patterns that we're dealing with now here in the U.S. And, and abroad. You get these very dramatic events that cause catastrophic levels of damage in localized areas. The next year, it could be someplace else that suffers that fate. Uh, it's not smooth by any means. It's a very bumpy road. We are on it, whether we like it or not. Okay, I'm going to do another pivot here. And uh, I want to talk about the adaptation community in general. And so I guess, first off, even though I saw you at the National Adaptation Forum, you kind of consider yourself an adaptation professional. Yeah, most definitely. You know, the work that my team does here at NRDC is is done wholly through a climate adaptation lens. That is why we've decided to engage on these issues, because we, we see that we see the need to help smooth that path for people who are going to be struggling with the impacts of climate change. We, we need to provide more options to people so they have the agency to do what's best for them in the face of the risks that are coming. Okay, so you attended the National Adaptation Forum. Was that your first, or have you been to previous ones? You know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, Doug, to you and your listeners, that it was the first Adaptation Forum I have personally attended. And I will, oh, not, wow. be making, I will not be making the mistake of missing, missing them in the future, because it was, it was a wonderful experience. Anybody who's out there listening, National Adaptation Forum happens every two years. It's an amazing convening of people who are working on these issues. And I found it to be just a, a, a just a great experience to be among people who think about these things as much as as the people I work with uh, and the colleagues that I work with day in and day out. Yeah, it's a great, great convening. You hear that, Laura Hansen? She's the organizer. She, that's a nice plug for you there. <laughs> okay. That was, that was unsolicited. Oh, that, that's goodness from the me. heart. You know, that was from the heart. But kissing on this podcast. So it was my third. And, you know, I, I really enjoy it. A lot of times it's just it's so great just because it's catching up in my previous lives of doing policy. I just get to see a lot of people that I, I know. So that's great. And so I've... I was going to ask you what you think, but you obviously got a lot out of it, especially being your first one. I did a podcast episode out of it. I've done it twice now. That was an incredibly popular episode, and people, the feedback was like they just loved – because I interviewed a bunch of like maybe 10, 15 different pe participants for like five minutes, and they just loved hearing the diversity of people's backgrounds that would attend the event. But one of the questions that I asked – people that attended, it's just like, you know, what's missing? You know, what were the blind spots? This is an, a new emerging field, and this is like the premier kind of adaptation form. But what did you feel was missing? Did you notice anything? Oh, you're asking me that question. I thought you were yeah. going to tell me what people, other people's response. Did you not listen was, to that I episode? <laughs> no, I did right. listen to that episode. So what do you think? Who was who missing if you could even notice those things? If it is your first, but did you kind of feel like, you know what, this is great. I'm making connections, but like this is missing. Did anything like that cross your mind? Man, there are so many people there and there are there's such a huge number of topics being covered. I I, I really 
for me personally, I didn't feel like there was a lot missing. <laughs> I think if there was if there's one area that would be great to see explored further at events like the National Adaptation Forum is is the issue of housing. A lot of communities in the U.S. are already struggling with a housing crisis and a availability of affordable housing. And the impacts of climate change are not going to make that an easier problem to solve. And there's a lot of housing groups out there that are starting to, to get into this arena. And I think it'd be great to have to, to see more of those organizations and, and stakeholders involved with things like the Adaptation Forum. Yeah, no, that would be great, too. And the thing that kind of came up just for your own knowledge, is that the big money wasn't there. If you think about the big banks and even like Goldman Sachs, you think of those, adaptation is going to be that big. And why aren't these people coming to these meetings and sort of connecting with folks? And then if you look at other industries, like the, you go to a civil engineers conference and it's huge. Those people should be showing up to this adaptation forum. And, I, and Laura Hansen, who's the organizer, she knows this and she's done a great job reaching out, but it's always just, you know, another conference. But I think when you start getting the big money attending the event, we've made it as opposed to policy people or <laughs> educational people. I, these are the conferences that I've attended all my life. And all right, <laughs> where, where's the big money kind of thing? And that's, that's what I, if that happens, that's when you know you've made it big. Well, we should make a push to get somebody like Goldman Sachs there. If you, um, as I recall, just last month, uh, Goldman Sachs put a very interesting report out about climate adaptation in cities around the world and highlighted this as one of, you know, an, an area where there will be hu- huge amounts of capital invested uh, in future years to cope with the impacts of climate change. So this is definitely something that Goldman Sachs is well aware of. And I would say the time is right. Let's let's extend the invitation now. Let's get them there. All right, Goldman, show up in your jet and attend the next forum. And I, I don't think they've announced the next location yet. I think they do that soon. It's every two years. And so that'll be a little while. But uh, we'll, we'll be we'll do our part. I, I mention the forum all the time on the podcast. Obviously, it's a. A chance for me to recruit people to come on the podcast, so it's good stuff. Well, sign me up. I'll I'll, I'll help <laughs> extend an invitation too. I think we should do that. Well, you know what? Just between you and me, I was looking at your board of trustees, and Leo DiCaprio's on it. So I just put a good word to get him to the National Adaptation Forum, and that creates some buzz for sure. So get on that one, okay? Yeah, I, I promise the next time he calls me up, it'll be at the top of the list. <laughs> All right. All right. I got a few more questions, and I want to <laughs> come back to this notion of communicating climate change. And I don't know if you remember your thought, but I thought maybe just what might spur your, your memory is that you recently did an event with Amy Brady in New York City about storytelling and climate change. And you shared the transcripts with me, and it was just – it seemed like a really cool event, and I'm going to be doing something similar coming up, but there were some artists there on the panel with you. Could you kind of just talk about th- that really quickly and then, you know, what you got out of it? It was a really incredible event. I'm a fan of Amy Brady, uh, the work she does at Guernica Magazine, as well as her monthly climate fiction column, Burning Worlds, on the Chicago Review of Books. And everybody that, that Amy arranged uh, to be part of that panel was – was just a, a, they were all just amazing people to be around. And, and the whole focus of that event was to talk about the role of storytelling in communicating climate change. So we had uh, Carolyn Corman, who's a, a journalist, a New Yorker. We had the author of Bangkok Wakes to Rain, an amazing book that, that contemplates a climate future in, in Thailand. And Eve Mosher, who's a visual artist, who's done a lot of, of projects and installations um, bringing 
uh, people's attention to problems of sea level rise. And yeah, the conversation was really about you know, how, how do we reach people? You know, what is the power of narrative and storytelling in helping people understand the challenges we face because of climate change and, and what the future potentially looks like um, and what we want it to look like. So it, it was just a, you know, it was one of these hour long panel discussions that's, it felt like from the people on stage's perspective that it only lasted about 15 minutes. And from the feedback we got in the audience, I think they would have been happy for it to go another hour or so. So it was, it was really great. And Guernica just published the transcript of, uh, of that event on their website. Yeah, and I'll, I'll have a, I've already included that link in in my show notes, so if people can go check that out. Okay, well, no, uh, Amy's great, and for folks who don't recognize the name, Amy's been on a couple times. She is the Cli-Fi guru, and we've talked about that on, on the podcast, and I'm actually going to do a panel with her very soon around similar things, and so it's always a treat to, to deal with Amy. And, you know, I've had a conversation with Amy, uh, Rob. I'm like, she's got to start her own podcast. And I know she's super busy, but she's got a great voice. She's got the best topic and she'd have an endless supply of guests to come on. And did you watch the piece she did for, uh, PBS, PBS online? No, I did not. Did not. Oh, you sh- I just watched it this morning. I think it came out last week or maybe earlier this week. Yeah. It was her on camera. It's really great. Yes. She, she's great. Oh, okay. This has been a fantastic conversation. I have a, two more questions that I want to ask. And one of them is a new question that I'm going to be experimenting with as making a, a recurring question. You probably know what my last question is because I pretty much do it with everyone. But the second to last question, I'm going to just try out on you and see if it works. Right. And who has been the most influential person for you in the adaptation space and why? Wow. That's such a great question, Doug. There's three people that that really come to mind. Very different reasons, I think. I think if you look back, one of the people who was talking about climate adaptation before that term was in more popular parlance is Oren Pilkey. He has been highlighting the threats to our coastlines and some of the, the folly of how we have developed our coastlines for decades. You know, be- before climate change and sea level rise even were top of mind concerns. And, and he, by the way, has a new book out with his, I believe his son, uh, about the challenges of sea level rise, which I've, uh, is on the pile of books to read uh, on my desk. Another person uh, who's been really, I think, important for my work, uh, actually, two, I, would, I would name two authors. Elizabeth Rushing's book, Rising, I think, was just a remarkable addition to the literature on sea level rise. It, it was the book that hadn't been written yet, really really making this about people's personal experiences. I think it really added a lot to the debate and the public discourse on this topic. So she, her work has been really inspirational to me. Jeff Goodell's work at Rolling Stone, I think you know, he's been a reporter that's been breaking a lot of stories and telling these stories in a way that reaches... Uh, so many people. I really think his work's had a big impact on me personally. Well, and then, ha- oh, sorry. sorry, I've got a, I've got a point <laughs> too. Go on. I'm totally dodging. Like I'm not. I'm not going to give you one answer. I guess. But you know, another person out there who, who I think is. I think he is a I'm trying to think of the analogy here. The the wind vane, the the, the wind sock, the barometer, the, t- the thermometer. You know, Craig Fugate 
former FEMA administrators is uh, very vocal about the things that we need to be doing better in this country on the disaster uh, preparedness and policy front, particularly in light of the future challenges of climate change and, and the impacts we're already seeing. And I think he's a really good person to be paying attention to. And, and I certainly pay attention to what he has to say. Okay. So I had two out of four of those people on the podcast. So that's good. And for listeners out there that if you come on the podcast, I am going to clamp down to one person. I'm, since this is the first time I've done it, I'm giving Rob. <laughs> The ability to give me four, my goodness, but they're all great people, all great people. But that's the point is the one person. But I, I'm, I'm going to cut him some slack here. So, Rob, final question, probably related, but if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would you recommend? Yeah, have you had um, a person who also I, I really like listening to, and, and I apologize, I don't know if they've been on your podcast, is uh, Rear Admiral David Titley. No. He has recently, I think, retired from Penn State University, but uh, he was a rear admiral in the Navy, very knowledgeable about climate change and climate adaptation, and uh, particularly the national security implications of it. He, he just was uh, – I just listened to an old podcast he did with uh, the Atlantic's Defense One uh, website, all about national security implications. But you know, he, that's probably his sweet spot, but he can go pretty deep in a lot of different areas. Great recommendation. And you said he's retired, right? Yeah, I got an email from I was trying to get hold of him to uh, be a speaker for a internal adaptation webinar series. We do at NRDC and he informed me, yeah, I've retired and he's out traveling the country. That would be good. I haven't done much national security stuff. OK, Rob, this has been fantastic. I have learned a ton and I'm very encouraged by the work that you're doing at NRDC. It's it's really desperately needed. And, and thanks again for coming on. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, Doug, and thanks for inviting me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Rob Moore for coming on. What a fun conversation. Rob is a leader in this space, and he's working on an issue that will be a key pillar in how we adapt to climate change. Getting the policies right can be a maddening process, and it's important that we have groups like NRDC slogging it out in the bureaucratic trenches. Hopefully, we'll see some progress in the coming years. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you and your organization are interested in partnering on a special podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot, and you're going to enjoy this. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences working in adaptation policy. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me at americadapts at gmail.com. Okay, your donation makes a huge difference. Don't forget this is a nonprofit organization. I only can do this through your support. You are providing financial support to further communicating what will be the defining issue of this and future generations. That's adapting to climate change. You can donate at a very simple website. The link is in my show notes. And also, you hear me talk about supporting the podcast financially, but there's other ways of supporting what we're doing here. Please find a favorite episode and plug it on social media with your friends, family, and colleagues. Word of mouth is the single greatest way podcasts grow. Within my show notes, you'll find all sorts of ways that you can share. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I'll approve you right away. 
Don't forget, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. I have been hearing from a lot of people in the last few weeks. It's been fantastic. Students asking my advice on how to get into the adaptation space, just random things. It's I never know when I get up in the morning what kind of email I'll be getting from my listeners, and it, it really is just a treat for me. If you have something cool, you have an idea for a guest, or if you have an idea for a partnership, you can contact me at americadapts.gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.